Isaiah chapter 53, and we'll be reading from verses 1 to 9. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The second reading is from Acts 17. It's on page 1113, 1113. Acts 17, verses 1 to 15. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of a crowd. But when they did not find them, They dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews 
were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Let me add uh, my welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller, if we've uh, not met. Let me lead us in prayer, and uh, we'll begin. Hey, great God and Father, we want to say again, speak, speak, O Lord, and build your church and build your kingdom so that your glory may indeed fill the earth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, no one ever wants to miss out, um, and I think that's probably particularly true uh, culturally or generationally. We live with FOMO, and um, uh, certainly don't want to be the ones who miss out on something that's good. And I think that's probably one of the reasons we read reviews of things. So if you, uh, you open your paper and you read, oh, this film that's come out, it's fantastic. It's not just critically acclaimed, which could mean boring. It's not just crit- critically acclaimed, it's a, it's a box office smash. And uh, you think, well, whatever it is, Black Panther or something, you think, well, I probably ought to go and see it. Everyone says it's brilliant, I, I, I must go. And so we do, we get sort of sucked in because you don't want to miss out. Or uh, uh, maybe come the summertime in particular, you uh, hear that there's one new novel come out, it's just fantastic. Uh, everyone's talking about it, you go on holiday and you're on the beach and every other person seems to be reading it and <laughs> laughing away as they read it. You think, well, I want to read it. Uh, I don't want to miss out. This is obviously a good thing. And uh, so let me just ask you a simple question. Have you read uh, the book which has been the global bestseller for the last 500 years in a row? Because that sounds pretty good. For 500, that's more than that, 500 years, it's been the best-selling book in the world every year. Well, that's pretty good, isn't it? You don't want to miss out on that. And, of course, I'm talking about the Bible. But this passage we're going to look at this morning in Acts 17, that's really its question. What do you make of the Scriptures? We'll see how Paul teaches from them. But then the bulk of the story is there's two different responses from uh, uh, the the people of uh, Thessaloniki and um, those of Berea. So Luke, the writer, is really asking us, what are you going to do with these Scriptures? Are you going to be jealous? Are you going to scream and, and make a fuss? What are you going to do with them? Are you going to be jealous? Or are you going to take them seriously? Have a look. Make up your mind. Two different responses, uh, Luke says. And that's really what this is about, this passage. Some people, they just didn't like what they found in the Bible and what it meant. Others thought, well, let's be honest here. I've got to work out if this is true or not. 
Uh, many of you will be joining us uh, just for today. We're working our way slowly through this uh, book of Acts. Uh, the author, Luke, Luke's Gospel and Acts, are sort of two volumes, they work together. But Luke tells us right at the beginning of uh, his writings, he says, I- I've written this so you can be certain that this is true. Certain of the events of Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, certain of the content of what the Christian message is, uh, certain of the innocence of the Christian Gospel. This is not designed to cause mutiny in the world. Um, but certainty, above all, that Jesus is growing his kingdom. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will grow. You can be certain of that. And I guess the contribution here is, it happens as he is taught from the scriptures. Here in Acts 17. So we're going to look, it's very briefly what Paul did. And then two responses, okay? What Paul did, two responses. So here's the, uh, here's the first thing. Paul taught Jesus from the scriptures. That's what he did. Now, if you were here last time, you know, in, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, Acts chapter 16 uh, hadn't gone so well in one sense in Philippi. Lots of people had become Christians, but um, uh, the authorities hadn't really liked Paul and Silas preaching. They'd beaten them up. They'd put them in prison. And so now, in fact, we may have a little map uh, of, uh, of their travels Really, we're on uh, this, the second missionary journey. Maybe, maybe not. But um, uh, th- there we go. So uh, they're in Europe. Uh, for the first time, they cross over to Philippi. And now they've traveled around the coast to uh, Thessalonica. The reason being, it's, it's the capital of uh, Macedonia, the region. Don't get into disputes over that name these days. But it's the capital of Macedonia. And uh, it's an affluent town. It's a trading center. So it's a logical place uh, for them to go. But uh, they travel about 100 miles uh, from Philippi around to uh, Thessalonica. And they do what they always do. So let's pick it up, uh, chapter 17. When Paul and his companions have passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, it's about 30 miles from each one, uh, they come to uh, Thessalonica, where there's a Jewish synagogue. And so Paul does, verse 2, what he always did when he went to a new city. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue And on three days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Now, Luke here really piles up the verbs about what Luke did. So he... Uh, verse 2, he reasoned. Verse 3, he explained and proved. Uh, verse 3, he proclaimed. Verse 4, he persuaded them. Here's a description of what Paul was doing. Or, or let me just try and highlight three little things as we go through. The first is simple. He opened the scriptures. For them, the Old Testament. So verse 2, he, he says, look, can I just show you what the Bible says about what the Messiah is going to do. Can I just show that to you uh, on these pages? He opens the scriptures. Second little thing we're told, he reasoned with them. He said, can we open the Bible and can you please, please use your brains? That's what I'm asking you to do, just to read what I'm reading and see what conclusions you come to. I'm not asking you to close your eyes. I'm not asking you to take a leap of faith. I'm saying, read what I read and use your brain. He reasoned with them. It's, uh, it's one of the easy Greek words to remember. The verb is dialogo. You know, he dialogued 
with them, had a conversation with them about it. It has the sense, uh, the sense of um, uh, explaining or, uh, or sorry, explaining, it goes on to say, and proving. They're sort of legal words. If you're in a court of law, you produce, I produce exhibit A as proof, my lord. That's this verb. I'm showing you stuff from the Old Testament to prove, my lord, or Thessalonians, who Jesus is. Just showing you all these places in the Old Testament where the Messiah is predicted and what he's going to do. Now, once this happened in the first century, this is what happens in history as well. I mean, the, the great discovery 500 odd years ago in the Reformation, for the first time across Europe, all of a sudden, the Bible, rather than just being in Latin in Europe, which no one can understand, and therefore the priest is the only one who, who can understand, and he says at the front, blah, 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 blah uh, and therefore you do what I say, all of a sudden the Bible is translated to German, to French, to English, and anyone can read it, and anyone can use their brains, and people can see the proof that is here. So you know your history, uh, Great hero in the UK, William Tyndale, translates the Bible, the New Testament, into English and is murdered for it. Henry VIII did everything he possibly could to ban all English Bibles, but in the end had to give up because too many were being smuggled in. And so he said, all right, so you can have an English Bible in every church, uh, every parish church uh, across England. And he thought, well, when the people read it, they'll, they'll all be docile. The problem was, people did read it. And every pub, and every tavern, and every alehouse becomes a debating chamber, because people say, oh, have you read what the Bible says? It's completely different from what all the vicars tell us. We should ignore them and do what this says. And you see, actually, we're all equal, says the Bible. Stuff that, you know, And there's a theological, but also cultural revolution when people can read it and say, do you see what it actually says? It's extraordinary. But it doesn't go down so well with everyone. Sorry, I've got, anyway, three little things. Paul, he opens the scripture. He says, use your brain. And the obvious thing we're told here as well, he teaches them about Jesus. Verse three. He explains and proves that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Had to. If you were a Jewish person in the first century, yeah, you're expecting a Messiah. The Old Testament said a Messiah would come. Everyone's expecting that. But that had sort of got morphed in common thinking to a military leader's going to come and take on the Romans and drive them out of Israel. That's what we need. So everyone's sort of expecting a military conqueror. And so Paul says, can I just show you what the Old Testament says? That the Messiah would have to die and rise again. And he offered them many, many sort of proofs. He'd have opened the Old Testament and said, here's exhibit A and B and C and D and E. We've already looked throughout the book of Acts. If you've been here in the book of Acts, the times they've gone back to Psalm 2 and, and Psalm 14 and all, all numerous places. We had read just one this morning, Isaiah 53. The Messiah would die and rise again. It's very strong here. Verse 3. The Messiah had to. 
had to suffer and rise from the dead. No other way, says Paul. I mean, Christians, we take it for granted, we know this, but if you ever just pause and think, okay, well, so God, God the Father sent his son to die. Why so dramatic? Why so costly? It had to be that way. There is no other way for us to be forgiven for all we've done wrong, for us to be certain of a place in heaven, but not for God coming down and dying in our place and rising again so we can have new life. There's no other way. If you read your Old Testament, it had to be that way. No other options. So that's the hope of the Old Testament. It's even clearer in the New Testament. So in one, in one sense, it's very simple terms. My plea to you this morning, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, would be, will you please open up a Bible and read what it says? Will you, open, will you use your brains? Will you just look reasonably at what is actually here in this book? Luke, who wrote the Gospel, and Luke, who, who wrote this book of Acts, he's a phenomenal historian, you just go back and what he writes about is 54 cities, 32 regions, nine islands. Everything he says, archaeologically, historically, is all accurate. The secular sources will tell you that. It's good history. Will you just open a Bible, open a gospel account of the life of Jesus and use your brain? Rather than assume you might know what's there. For those of us who are Christians, the obvious point is, you can do this. What does Paul do? He opens a Bible, says, look, there's Jesus. Can you look with me? Just, let's, let's discuss it, let's reason, let's dialogue about what to, you can, you can do that. You don't need a PhD in theology. You don't need any expertise. You don't need to read Greek or Hebrew. You just need the conviction but when the Bible's opened and you say to people, look, here's Jesus. Can you see who he is and what he says? That that is how Jesus grows his church. I mean, lots do do this, of course, just reading Luke's gospel or John's gospel with someone, a colleague, a friend. It's very simple. Paul taught Jesus from the scriptures. That's what he did. And then there are two responses. More briefly, two responses in uh, Thessalonica and then in Berea. First, then in, uh, in Thessalonica, let's pick it up again in um, uh, verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded, great, uh, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. That's great, but, and here's the focus, but verse 5, other Jews were jealous. So here's what the text doesn't say, of course. Other Jews were jealous, and so they argued with Paul and showed him why he was wrong, and they presented the evidence from a different angle. doesn't say that. They don't engage with the argument. They're just angry. So verse 5, other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, 
formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. They didn't find them. They dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. Do you you see that they don't say, oh, that's interesting what you've explained there, Paul. I'm not sure what I make of that. It's not a logical response, not a reasoned response, not an intelligent response. It's just anger. In particular, we're told they're jealous. Why jealous? Well, perhaps there's a loss of of influence. Some people are leaving the synagogue and and joining this new church. Yeah, perhaps that. Paul is certainly not given an, an opportunity to respond to their accusations. Not entirely clear what happens, but um, verse 9, Jason's put on bail and, and the others are let go. It seems they say to Paul and Silas, look, you go, Jason's on bail and we'll only release him if you leave our city. And if you come back, he's coming back in prison. That seems to be the implication, so they're, they're coerced to leave. There's just anger from them here, though. But that's the truth. As soon as you get people to open a Bible and scrutinize what it says... It removes all the power from the religious leaders. Because anyone can say, well, I'm not sure about that. In the English Reformation, as soon as ordinary men and women could read the Bible for themselves, think for themselves, superstition goes. The power of the priests goes. Because anyone can read the Bible. And it's still the case today. In a healthy church, it's not awkward to say, in a healthy church, When you walk in or in the pews in front of you or the seats, there will always be a Bible. And the point is, look, as we open Acts 17, will you look down and is what the preacher is saying what the Bible says? Are they the same thing? If not, ignore. If they are, well, that's what God is saying. But in an unhealthy church, you go in, there are no Bibles because they don't want you to ask what God is saying. They just want you to listen to the bloke at the front and his own brilliance. I have no brilliance. That's why we have Bibles. No, no, it's by by conviction. By conviction. But that's a healthy mark of a church. There's a real world of difference between look with me at what this says. That's very different from listen to me and do what I tell you. It's very different. Remember a couple of years ago, we had a, a student here uh, wasn't from London, but he was studying at Imperial College, and he'd come here for about two years or so and, and sort of grown in his knowledge uh, of the Bible. He'd come as a Christian, but he grew in his knowledge of the Bible. Uh, and then uh, after Christmas one year, I think it was his third year, he came back and said, oh, I had a bit of a time. Uh, I went back to my home church, uh, and the pastor there, he's a sort of self-appointed bishop. He calls himself bishop. No one's made him that. He's just used that title himself, uh, but everyone does sort of title of Grandismont, don't know. But anyway, he called himself a bishop, and uh, he said, but I was sat there listening to him, and I was looking down at the Bible, I thought, well, that's not just what the Bible says. So afterwards, I went to him and said, Bishop, do you mind me saying, I couldn't understand how what you said is anything like what the Bible said. Can you just help me join up the dots here? And the bloke went nuts, just roared at him, and told him he was never welcome to come back to his home church. It's a bit strong, isn't it? A bit extreme. But you see, a healthy church, one says, 
let's open the Bible and reason. An unhealthy dynamic is if there are no Bibles and the person just says, listen to me. They're jealous because there's a loss of authority. There's reaction one. Some reacted with jealousy. Uh, Second one then. Others examined carefully. Now, there's an obvious contrast drawn between Thessalonica and Berea. I mean, much of the same thing. At the same time, Paul and Silas, they go to the synagogue, first of all. They open the scriptures. But there's the differences, verse 11. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, again, this word examined, it's used later on in the book of Acts whenever Paul is on trial. We're told, for example, chapter 24, verse 8, Paul's on trial, and we're told he's examined by the judge. He's cross-examined, as it were. So here again is a word of scrutiny. Let me just pick away what you've said there. And so these Bereans, they, they, Paul teaches them stuff from the Old Testament. They go, well, we're going to have a look. We're going to look, study this very carefully and see if that's true. Oh, that's good, says Luke the writer. Crucially, they're asking the question: Is what the preacher is, is what the preacher says what the Bible says? An important question. And so every day we're told. They examine the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. The outcome, verse 12, as a result, many of them believed, as also did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Taget's just one of Luke's little things. He wants to highlight that. Verse 12, lots of prominent women become Christians. Verse 4, earlier, even in Thessalonica, quite a few prominent women. The point being that it was unprecedented in the first century for women to have equal status with a man. As, uh, as the Bible would have taught. But once again, verse 13, the, the Thessalonians, the Thessalonica Jews, they turn up. They're very unhappy. And you've got to be quite committed because it's about 60 miles from Thessalonica to Berea. So um, that's quite a, and you're traveling by foot. So it's quite a commitment. You are quite angry. Verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring up the mob. Well, what happens? Well, Paul moves on again. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. Silas and Timothy stayed. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left. And you can read this and think, has Paul just abandoned them? A bit, bit weak. We're not told how long he's in Berea. We're just preaches and then runs. Okay, well, he leaves Silas and Timothy, but more importantly, he's now given them the scriptures and says, do you see how Jesus fulfills all these Old Testament scriptures? And if they've got that, they've got the Bible, that's what they need. They don't need Paul. The uh, Reformation in Germany William, uh, excuse me, Martin Luther, he, uh, this is quite a famous quote. He was asked about his own contribution to uh, the Reformation in Germany. And uh, quite famously, he put it this way. I opposed indulgences and I opposed all the Roman Catholics, but never with force. 
I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Phillips and Amstorf, he did like his beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. That's a famous quote, and it's not entirely true. He did do quite a bit, of, of course, but you see his point. It didn't need me. As soon as the people had the word of God and could read it for themselves, <clears throat> it blew apart the papacy, because now people could say, well, that ain't true. We've got to buy an indulgence. In order to get a purgatory, there's no purgatory in there. What are you talking about? It's just not in the Bible. And the word transformed Europe in the 16th century, just as it did in the first. Look, Paul taught Jesus from the scriptures. Some reacted with jealousy, others examined carefully. Let me just finish through two little implications, I guess. Uh, the first will be this. Look, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, why is that? Or can I ask you, have you ever actually examined what the Bible says? Have you ever done that? This is the book that transformed the world. It is only in Europe after the Reformation that astrology becomes astronomy as mysticism dies out. Alchemy becomes chemistry as superstition dies away because people have the scriptures. That the language of mathematics becomes the language of science after the Bible's Reformation encouraged people to think for themselves. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Only when the scriptures were taught, and there was a reformation in Europe at that time. But more, more acutely, I guess, the Bible, yes, it changed the world. But of course, it might change you. And in the end, for some people, and I, I just want to ask the question, I don't presume that it's true of everyone, but if you've never read one of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the life of Jesus. If you never read one as an adult, why not? Why would you not? You could be missing out on, well, you are missing out. But of course, for some people, it's they just don't want it to be true. It's inconvenient if it's true. In Thessalonica, they got some of this. It's not entirely accurate, but verse 7, the crowd starts shouting. The Christians, they're defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. Well, they weren't defying Caesar's decrees, apart from they were saying, yeah, Jesus is king. And my allegiance is to him above all others, above Caesar. And in the 21st century, people are still reluctant to say, yeah, Jesus is king. My allegiance is to him more than myself. I put him first. People don't want to do that sometimes. Even though the offer is here is one who will die for all you've done wrong and guarantee your eternity in heaven. Sometimes people are honest enough to say that. Look, I'm not sure I want it to be true. I don't want my life to change. But come on, put it in these terms. Uh, uh, imagine 
a young man in a refugee camp who's known nothing else but queuing daily for water and food and dying of dysentery. And someone comes to him and says, would you like to claim asylum in the West? And if he then responded, no, thank you, I don't want my life to change, you'd say, you fool. Don't say that. You may not want your life. It'll be so much better. You will live. You'll get medical care. Whereas if you stay, you'll die. Yeah, but I don't want my life to change. Oh, don't say that. You don't know what you're missing out on. Don't say, oh, look, I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want my life to change. Don't say that. You don't quite realize what you're missing out on. The hope of eternity. If you're a Christian here this morning, let me say to you just a couple of things, I guess. Uh, Personally, are you a noble Berean examining the scriptures every day? Uh, That's the attitude, I guess, is encouraged. If you're a Christian and have been a long time, you can take it for granted. I was struck reading, um, I mentioned to you this book, uh, 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 The Insanity of God, the Nick Ryan book, the the, the collection of uh, accounts of him traveling uh, around different persecuted churches in the world. At one point, he's in China. And uh, he's at this gathering about 170 church leaders. Now, there's not three self-churches. These are uh, illegal underground churches. As there's about 170 gather at this big farm in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and it's the first time any of them have all gathered together. Because it's very dangerous to do so. I mean, if the government knew they're all gathering together, what a great. You can hoover up 170 church leaders and put them in prison all at the same time. 170 gather together. And it's a week's conference. And it's an enormously encouraging time. Uh, on the last day, Nick is just a bit perturbed because he w- realizes that a couple of, a few people are wandering around and um, ripping up Bibles and sort of distributing bits of paper out. And he says to one of the Chinese guys, what are you all doing ripping up the Bible? To which the chap says, well, there's 170 church pastors here. Only seven of them have got a Bible. Now, all of us have memorized the Gospels off by heart, because we have to. But only seven of us have got Bibles. So the seven have decided to rip up, rip up and give everyone a book that they've never studied. Is that extraordinary? Can you imagine, therefore, the joy? You get Genesis. Wow. You get the book of Isaiah. You get the Psalms. Wow. I mean, look, if you've got Philemon, you might be a bit disappointed. Let's be honest, it's only about, it's only about 500 words or something. But um, you just, wow. Can you imagine their excitement? Now, I, oh, it's a whole new book of the Bible that I get to study for myself and, and teach to this church. There'd be a sort of excitement, which you and I, with multiple Bibles in our homes, may have slightly lost. We want to be a little bit more like the Bereans, excited, studying every day. But I guess more generally, and fitting into Luke's purpose in this book of Acts, Luke wants us to have confidence that it is as this very simple work happens, that as the scriptures are opened and Jesus is taught, that he grows his church. As the scriptures are opened and Jesus is taught, We say, speak, O Lord. Build up your church. Would your word go out so that the world is full of your glory? It's a very simple task. But let's never forget that as the scriptures are opened and Jesus is taught, that is how 
you can know with certainty he will build his church. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, would you help us to be those who are honest? And as we have read this morning from the scriptures, would we be honest enough to search our own hearts and say, what is our response? What is our reaction when this message supremely about Jesus Christ, of his death for our sins, uh, his resurrection to new life, when that's taught, when it's proven that that is the whole message of the Bible, of the Old Testament and new, would we be honest to respond in our response? And no, if we don't like it, why is that? If we resent that as a message, why is that? Help us to be honest in our responses, Lord. And for those of us particularly who are Christians, would we never lose our confidence in this simple truth that as the scriptures are opened and Jesus is taught, you are building your kingdom. We ask it in his name. Amen.